So, as I said, open your Bibles to, it's Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And the, uh, that section from verse 14 through 29 is going to be the main focus of our study today. But, uh, and this is, by the way, the teaching of Jesus healing the epileptic son. And it's a very detailed account, and there's a lot in it to learn about demons, about faith of people, about lack of faith, about prayer, about Jesus' compassion on people. Again, about the disciples' lack of understanding and their lack of faith. So there's, there's a lot just in those few verses. Uh, yet, as is common in, in when I've taught through Mark, you just I can't resist backing up and reading large sections, because I think, again, that was his main intention, and when you read a large section of Mark, you really get a sense of movements and what Jesus is trying to to do uh, through his miracles and through his teaching, and uh, we can just learn a lot from that. So we will read a large section of Mark here, chapter 9, in a few minutes. Um, But before I do that, let's review just a little bit. If you can flip in your Bibles... And I'll just briefly go through this, back to Mark chapter 8. And remember, this uh, section of Mark, from really the beginning to middle part of chapter 8, all the way through to the end of chapter 9, is obviously a time, when you read it, where Jesus is focusing his teaching on the disciples. It's, It's his time of preparation before he heads to Jerusalem, to the cross, but... This is a section of Mark where he really takes his teaching from the crowds, from all the people, and he just moves and he focuses on the disciples largely. And you remember just before this section was when he had fed the 4,000 people after he'd fed the 5,000. He feeds the 4,000, and that's in a region called Decapolis. He gets in a boat. They head across the sea to this area called uh, Dalmanutha, and then they cross back over to the other side of the lake, so... um, He's in the Sea of Galilee region. And I just want to read a few verses going through from Mark 8.15 to the end of chapter 9. You don't have to follow along. You can follow loosely. Just to impress on you the fact that he is indeed focused on the disciples. In Mark 8.15 it says, And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the Pharisees. Mark 8.21, He was saying to them, Do you not yet understand? Remember? Even before that, their hearts were hardened from the things he was teaching. And then in Mark 8, 21, he says to them, the disciples, do you not yet understand? After that, you remember, he healed this blind man in sort of two separate stages and concluded largely from that 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 was an image or a um, representation of sort of the disciples and how they're sort of learning. They learn, then they learn more and concluded that that was an image or a picture of that fact. Mark 8, 27, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And then that's, after that is when Peter, of course, declares, you are the Christ. Shortly after that, Peter is rebuked. Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them, the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer. He was stating the matter plainly to them. And the teaching there to the disciples uh, was primarily, you remember, Peter rebukes him, and Jesus says, you, your mind is on the world. Get your mind off the world, Peter. It is on the world. You don't have your mind set on the things of God. Take up your cross. 
don't be ashamed of me. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. It was real hard teaching for Peter after he um, was tempted by Satan, really, to say what he said. Okay, so after that hard teaching, you remember in chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, which was the main teaching for last week about the transfiguration. Jesus on the mountain, he's glowing white, his face, his clothes, and he's there with Moses and Elijah. It was an image that the apostles would never forget. And it was intentional for Peter, James, and John to see that so that they would not forget it. And it was an example of um, Jesus, or God, pouring forth through Jesus' flesh. Right? And it, was just, it broke through so that the, and the disciples could see that, and that was intentional. I do want to mention while we're there in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, because we talked about this last week, where it says, Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I forgot to mention this like last week. So I asked, well, what is he referring to? When, when is the kingdom of God going to come to power? Those who won't taste death um, prior to the kingdom of God coming. And we basically concluded it's not talking about the second coming of Christ. It's talking about something more immediate. Either the transfiguration, which they see six days later, or possibly, and this is sort of the way I lean, talking about the kingdom of God coming at Pentecost, okay? He, he could have been referring to the whole era of after Pentecost, the early church, the kingdom of God coming with power. I think none of those would really be wrong, but evidence for us that he may actually have been referring specifically to the transfiguration is, and I forgot to mention this last week, chapter 9, verse 2, when it says six days later, that wouldn't be so unique except Mark doesn't use specific time frames very much in his gospel. So the fact that Mark would say six days later, the verse after he mentions his coming of God with power, uh, makes us want to lean toward maybe that is what he was referring to. I just want to clarify that from last week. But I think it's not completely clear, and uh, we can accept it as Pentecost or after is what he was referring to. Okay, so indeed, six days later, Mark 9, it says he took, him, took with him Peter, James, and John. Again, I'm emphasizing all this teaching specifically to the disciples. And they went up to the mountain, probably Mount Hermon. Mark 9, 9, it says uh, they were coming down from the mountain. He gave them orders. Don't tell anyone. Mark 9, 28, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? Mark chapter 9, verse 30, it's, 31, it says he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man. Okay, so all that to say, pretty clear, there is a high density of Jesus saying, I'm teaching my disciples, I'm instructing my disciples, I'm giving orders to my disciples, really focused teaching on them. And then just to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, if you look at chapter 10, verse 1, just to tell you where we're going, after chapter 9, when he has this focused teaching for the disciples, chapter 10, verse 1, this is another section of Mark's Gospel. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So he's, he's going to head on down to Israel, to Jerusalem, excuse me. And uh, so that, that's the next phase of his journey, heading to Judea and Samaria into Jerusalem. And then if you look at chapter 11, verse 1, it's neat the way these are divided by the chapter headings. 
as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. So, finishing his teaching with his disciples, chapter 9, chapter 10, he travels through Judea down to Jerusalem. Chapter 11, he arrives in Jerusalem for the remaining weeks of his life. So I just want to be sure we I put that in context of where we are right now. Before I read this section, just note, in these last few verses I've read from really chapter 8 and 9, Jesus mentions one, two, three, four times, and then five times if you add the end of Mark chapter 10, this fact that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. 8.31, he says it. Mark 9.9, he gave them orders, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man rises from the dead. The end of Mark chapter, or verse 30, he was teaching his disciples, telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he's been killed, he'll rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement. They were afraid to ask him. And then at the end of chapter 10, he says the same thing. We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. <coughs> They'll mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Three days later, he'll rise again. So, a large part of his teaching to the disciples was this fact that he's going to die. And throughout the teaching here, the disciples don't understand it. <coughs> so keep that in mind. Excuse me. Yes. Thank you. I'm fighting <coughs> a little cold here. Sorry. Okay. So as I read this, I'm going to read actually most of chapter 9 verse 14 through the end. And uh, <coughs> as I read, just note, there's three key verses I want you to pay attention to. Verse 19, when he basically rebukes his disciples, when he says, oh, unbelieving generation, included in that largely is the disciples. Verse 29, he basically tells the disciples, you didn't know how to pray hard enough, Billy. You don't, you don't have enough, you don't have faith. So another little bit of a rebuke for the disciples. And then when I get to verse 34, this adds a lot of color to um, what's going on. In the midst of all this, they keep <coughs> arguing which one is the greatest. So I will read this, I hope, excuse me. <coughs> and um, just pay attention to those things. I tell you what, can I have a volunteer to read this section? Can a man with a nice, strong voice read for us so I can give my voice a rest just for a minute? It's going to be verse 14 all the way through the end of the chapter. Thank you, Phil. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, 
And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will arise. But they did not understand and saying, the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thank you, Phil. Thanks. So um, I hope you can see a little bit about, and we'll, we'll get to this later, but the disciples and their inability 
to understand what Jesus is doing and furthermore, their inability to really get their minds off themselves. It's amazing, isn't it? He's doing this miracle. He's healing this young man. He's healed all kinds of people. And they're walking. They've seen the transfiguration. This God is in their midst. And they're walking along, and they keep saying, who's the greatest among us? He's not with us. He, you know, so their whole attitude is still very much uh, self-centered. And I think, and you can see that through this chapter. And it adds a little color to Jesus' rebukes, because he knows their heart, right? Sometimes when you read what Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long does it put up with you? You get a little sense of what he means by that, because he, he knows what they're really thinking, and they really are far from him, despite all these years of teaching at his side. Before we get there, let's just go ahead and look at this um, <clears throat> scene with this poor boy who has uh, epilepsy, obviously, from a medical point of view. I mean, all of us can recognize this would be something that looks like seizure, like we people have today. We'll talk about that. The first thing to note is uh, it says in verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and subscribes arguing with them. So, this, and then verse 15, immediately when the entire crowd saw it, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. So first thing, scribes are arguing. That's not really new, right? Uh, what were they arguing about? Do you th it's pretty clear here. What, what were they tussling with the the nine disciples who were not with Jesus up on the mountain. They, they left the nine there, and what were they arguing about? Well, they're arguing about, why can't you guys cast this demon out? No doubt they were sort of happy about that. They're sort of, ha-ha, they're pretty tickled that you had this obviously demon-possessed boy, and the nine disciples are there trying to cast out the demon, and they can't do it. Um, so, no doubt that that's what they were talking to the disciples about. And then the evidence of that is in verse 15. Immediately when the crowd sees Jesus, they're amazed. They begin running up to greet him. Some people think that they're amazed because maybe his face was shining, right? He's, he'd just gone through the transfiguration. Maybe he still had this radiance like Moses did when he came off the mountain. Uh, it's an interesting thought, but probably not because... Um, Jesus says in here and in the other accounts, don't tell anybody what happened. All right, so he, he wanted to keep this a secret intentionally. So probably they were amazed because they, finally some relief is coming to help this uh, epileptic boy. Um, so, so you see the scene. Disciples can't fix this problem. Jesus arrives from the mountain. Crowd runs up to greet him. And he asked them, what were you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. The other accounts, in Luke it says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only boy. So this father is very desperate to get some relief for this son. Matthew says <clears throat> in 17, verse 14, When they came to the crowd, a man came up, to Jesus falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. And the word lunatic meant epileptic. And it's interesting, luna, lunar, 
they thought that you know he was affected by the light of the moon. It was some sort of curse on this this boy. So he had epilepsy and he was very ill. So you can see pretty clearly that the dad is very desperate, and we'll see later this boy is really very ill, constantly having seizures. And uh, the father notices. He said he he has a seizure and basically said he's possessed with a spirit which makes him mute so he couldn't hear, right? Or he couldn't talk, excuse me. So he has all these seizures, he can't talk, and Jesus later curses or casts out the spirit. Um, he said it confirms it's a deaf and mute spirit. So the boy had a lot of seizures, he couldn't talk, and he couldn't hear. Oh, I think they were, we'll see. It was all the spirit, yeah. So, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. So I, I mentioned that today people have seizures, right? And there's a pathophysiology behind it. We actually don't know what causes most seizures, but um, they're treatable with medicines, right? So there's something wrong with our brain sometimes that causes seizures. But this seizure was caused by spirit, and Jesus confirms it, basically, is the way I would answer that. Definitely was caused by an evil spirit. Um, so, the image again, a deaf, mute boy with uncontrollable seizures. So, was he deaf and mute only when the seizures were upon him? That's a good question. I think he was deaf and mute all the time. That's my conclusion of the sense of this, but I think it's not too clear. Of course he'd be deaf and mute when he's having a seizure. That's, that, I mean, if... I would guess, assume that at least that, yeah, that's here. But I guess I have the image of, of a real pitiful boy, deaf and mute with these chronic recurring seizures. And I guess this text says the spirit made him mute, so the, the spiritual demonic possession was the source of all his, his problems. Uh, verse 18, whenever it seizes him, Whenever it takes hold of him, that's what the word is. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. The, uh, another way to translate it would be he withers away, he dries up, he's wasting away. So another imagery is he's just he's almost like malnourished. He's withering away. He's consumed by these seizures. They're ongoing, and it's just a pitiful sight. <clears throat> the ASV, has it says he pines away. I think that's a neat description of it. So, very sad, pitiful situation. Luke chapter 9 says, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. So, it crushes him. It's like the image of breaking him into pieces. This poor little boy. And the drama is heightened when, you know, we learn that it's his only boy and when the father asks to help us, he's asking, you know, he, he, the father's life is consumed with this too. If you can imagine, uh, he had to watch out for him every second. The seizure's throwing him into fire and throwing him into this waters, pools somewhere, and he's drowning. So uh, it, it's a uh, consuming entity for this boy and his father. He says, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. So all the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke point that out. The disciples could not do it. They could not cure him. And then this is where Jesus says, um, in verse 19, 
O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So, O unbelieving generation, oh, first of all, oh, it's a sigh. It's like, oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? So the idea here is, uh, I don't know if exasperation would be the right word, but Jesus definitely senses that he's in a world where he doesn't belong. He's heading somewhere else soon, and it seems like he's ready to do that. He is marching now to Jerusalem. Oh, sigh, oh, unbelieving generation. And generation probably means, well, all the people around he could be for referring to, but most the commentators, actually all of them that I read said, this is really more focused on the disciples. So obviously everyone, the unbelieving uh, Pharisees, the unbelieving people who just want to see miracles, in some ways, the father who has a little faith he could be referring to, but I think mainly he, he, this is focused on the disciples because this is, remember, the section where he's focusing his, his teaching on the disciples. So, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. It seems a little harsh, but Jesus is right. He's God. So his tone and his attitude toward the disciples is proper. It's true. It's 100% correct. And at the same time, uh, he's a little frustrated that they don't see it yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't want to say Jesus' attitude is somehow intolerant or impatient. It's right, though. It's proper. And I think we understand what he's feeling here in his humanity. Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. So that's interesting. So the spirit is so evil, he knows Jesus, God, is there. He's approaching, and he decides to just one last time do something cruel, throw him into a uh, convulsion. And falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And... Um, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? So what's the, any ideas why Jesus is asking how long has this been happening? So that Matthew can record it. Yeah, maybe so Matthew can record it. Well, what do you mean by that? So that we would have it. Oh, yeah, right. So what do you mean by Matthew recording it? I'm sorry, Mark. Okay, thank you. I thought it was a trick question, yeah. <laughs> a trick answer. Um, I mean, obviously Jesus knew, knows everything. So I think it's just, a, it's just a way of engaging the Father. You know, how long has this been happening? Maybe to remind the Father or to remind the people around there that would hear him answer, you know, since childhood, um, what's about to happen? Jesus is going to fix it. This has been going on for a long time, and the healer is present, and he is going to fix it, and they're all going to see it, and they're all going to understand that this is, uh, this is his miracle. Right. So it validates the true nature of this demon possession. It's not something spurious or temporary and just coincidental sort of that Jesus was able to do it. Yeah, it's an established pattern <coughs> since childhood, and he's going to stop it. So there's a physiological side to this, and then there's a spiritual side mm-hmm. to this as well. 
have to have faith, and then you can overcome all these physiological things. Uh-huh. So, um, is there is there a spiritual as a physician? I'm going to ask you if you think there's a spiritual aspect to somebody who would come to you today with epilepsy or uh-huh. any other physiological problem because there. In other words, Jesus healed people that didn't have yep. spiritual issues other than their own sin. For instance, you know, the man born blind or, or you know, lame people. Mm-hmm. Or demon-possessed. But, you know, he dealt with their physiology. Yeah. I mean, showing himself to be Lord over all creation. Mm-hmm. You know, physical and spiritual as well. So what, what would you say? I give a whole lecture on this at the counseling conference, seriously, entitled um, How to Counsel People with Physical Illness. And I see if I can remember some of the main points, but a couple points. So he's asking, basically, how do we discern, you know, is, are there spiritual causes of physical ailments? And how does a Christian today discern it? So I think it's a great question, and we're not going to have all the answers. But first, I will say, go ahead. Do you have a question? No, I finished. Um, clearly, some illness has nothing to do with spiritual problem. And in the case of the man born blind, they bring him, and it's John chapter 9, who sinned, this man or his parents? He said, neither sinned. This was for God's glory. So the one reason we have illness is to bring glory to God. And the application I use to that for us today is, if you're sick, consider that. There's a reason behind it. If your child is sick or there's some infirmity, there is a reason for that, and that... Is a, for a Christian is always to bring glory to God in dealing with it. That's one thing. And the second thing, just practically, clearly, there's we live in a sinful world. We have bodies that will decay. We're all going to get sick, and that may not have anything to do with sin. Well, other than the fallen nature of You're right. creation. Other than the fallen nature of creation, which is inevitable. We, have, we live in an earth that's temporary, and it's all going to pass away eventually, and so are we. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about the uh, anointing with oil. It's tough to uh, apply that today because we don't, as a church, anoint people with oil to heal them. And we determined back then when we studied that um, in Mark chapter 6, the anointing with oil, I believe, was a a sign of God's, um, the, the disciples' mercy and blessing on them bring healing. It wasn't, it didn't, there was no magical mystery in the oil that could heal them. So, I guess illness can bring glory to God. Illness can be due just to the fallen nature of humankind and the fact that our bodies decay. Illness can be due to sin. I mean, practically we know there's some sins that cause illness. You know, drinking a lot, eating a lot, you know, overdoing things and drugs and, um, there's all kinds of behavior that we would say is not Christ-like that can bring on sin. And then as far as demon possession, uh, I don't think that that is something that is at all dominant now like it was in Jesus' time. 
I mean, it's such a flurry of demonic activity around Christ's ministry. And I think that was a unique experience at that time. And we've talked about this before. Um, but I, I, when I see patients that have seizure disorder, I don't think demon possession. I guess that's how I'd answer it. Anybody else have different opinions about or insights in uh, illness with spiritual cause? Well, that puts that puts the medical system really on a pedestal that they don't deserve, I think. So, yeah, I don't quite see that analogy. I think I know what he's saying, though. That, that's a blessing of God's general mercy to have medicines to help people. I think that's that's true. That's good. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question. No, you, Phil. Yeah, I don't, I, that's, that's interesting. I wouldn't. Quite see it that way. But. Well, don't you see the uh, the enemy's work in the in the world of psychology? You know that we, we take all of these what we would all classify as sinful behaviors mm-hmm. as believers, and then the psychological world takes that same thing and makes it a medical issue. And, yeah. Uh, then we're using drugs to treat drug, you know, to compound it. Yes. Well, I think, yeah, it's hard. When I was a young Christian, I was uh, in medical school. I remember reading texts like this, and I wasn't strong in my faith. I had a liberal view of the Bible, I think. And I read, and I thought, well, this is seizure. They just don't understand back then what was going on, and they called it a demon. But really, all this was was a seizure. And the, and the fact that they brought demons into it was just their own imagination. That's how I sort of looked at it, but... Now that we, I know the Bible is true, and if it says Jesus said it was a demon, it was a demon in this guy, and that is what caused his seizure, and don't know why it causes other people's. Am I heard somebody, like somebody seizures, that's what you're saying. I mean, I know there's a guy in Virginia who shot up the FBI office, and he said that he had demons, you know, he had voices in his head. So I do think there's a demon possession, and those, I think they can get so evil that they do become demon-possessed yeah. in those situations. Maybe so. I don't know if you've ever been in a... Uh, psychiatric ward with people who have schizophrenia, high percentage of them do have these um, divine uh, dialogue. Um, it's real interesting. I mean, it's fascinating, actually, it, it, but um, I haven't c- concluded in my own mind that that really is demon possession. I think it's their own mind. Um, grandeur thoughts. It'd be hard to, I mean, if, if you had like an EEG and you could hook it up to this boy's head back then. If, if you could measure something in there, I don't know. Yeah. I, I have no idea. It might not be demon possession, but they could definitely be the side effects of the medication that you have at your hands. Mm-hmm. Maybe you bring about some stuff, you know, that yep. that's entering in that pharmaceutical witchcraft, you know. Right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I don't think I've answered it completely. I do know for this boy, it was a demon. And my opinion is this doesn't happen much at all today. And I don't ever think of demon possession for people who have physical ailments. But I do recognize sinful behavior practically can lead to physical problems and try to address that. Any other insights on that? It's a tough question. Um, So the point is, he was demon-possessed. He was pining away. Miserable, pitiful young man. Jesus alludes to the fact that they're an unbelieving generation. He tells them they're unbelieving. They bring the boy to him. The spirit, sort of in a tantrum, immediately then has another, throws the boy into a convulsion. He asks the father, how long has this been happening, in order to validate, yeah, this is a real thing. Everyone's going to see here. He's had it for a long time, and I'm going to heal him. It says, it's often, verse 22, thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So again, the father's insight is this demon is intentionally bringing on destruction, trying to, you know, I guess kill this boy eventually, if it could. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So crying out for help, not just for the boy, but for the dad. I mean, imagine it. You have a boy. He's just constantly having this problem. You can't leave him alone for a second, right? You've got to pull him out of the fire and take care of him, and he can't hear and he can't talk. So the, the father and the boy are like this, right? They're both burdened um, with this problem. And he pleads for Jesus, to Jesus for help. Jesus answers him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. That's an important statement. He's saying, of course I can. Of course, I'm God. You know, I can do it. And, and by the way, all things are possible for him who believes. We'll talk about that statement in a minute. And then immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. So this is a, we all know this phrase, but it's a really beautiful phrase, right? Because on the one hand, uh, I believe, he, he does, he, he has faith right there that Jesus can fix his boy, he has it, and at the same time he has a humility to recognize, I'm human, I, I don't have much belief, so it's, it's a great paradoxical statement, I do believe, help my unbelief, it, it really shows the character of this man who um, believes in the Lord and humbly recognizes his own limitations. Uh, yes. If, if you can do any, just a, just a little relief. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had a friend one time who comes from like a Pentecostal background. His wife was eight months pregnant. She fell down stairs. And he asked me to pray for her, and I did. But in my prayer, I said, you know, if this baby is injured or something, you know, be glorified. And, uh, he said, no, no, no. You know, he said, you know, why would God make my baby injured? And I took him to uh, Exodus hmm. 4. Said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Huh. I yeah. Said, God's the one who makes it, and He doesn't. He doesn't hmm. make mistakes. It's not by accident. You know, yeah. He He decrees. Yes. What you know? How we're going to be put together. 
so he, the father is standing there. He's saying, Lord, if you could give him any kind of relief. Right. And this is, this is the Lord Jesus who made this boy. Right. Who made him with all of his mm-hmm. physiological limitations. And, you know, made all creation. Right. So, yeah. So I think you're saying it, it does point again to his humility and his desperation. If you can do anything, help me. And Jesus, of course, says, I can do it, everything. I, I can, yes. That's why Jesus asked him with an explanation. If you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, he's asking him with explanation. Yeah. That's right. You know who you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Uh, William Hendrickson, who is one of the commentators I read, he says, Very striking is this answer in which the tempest-tossed father pours out his very heart. I think that's a really neat explanation. Tempest-tossed father pours out his very heart. So, verse 25, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, they came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he's dead. So a couple things here to note. So the crowd, somehow Jesus had got separated with the boy and his father from the crowd. They were rapidly gathering because probably, you know, they love seeing the miracles, and they want to get in and see this miracle. And, um, but I believe, consistent with the way Jesus has handled these situations in the past where, you know, often he doesn't want people to know about it. He basically, it seems like, wants to heal him before they arrive. So that, because the point here isn't to be um, impressed by the miracle. The point is going to be the teaching for the disciples. That's the main point. And and the crowd might distract from that. So uh, the sense here is he wants to heal this young boy before the crowd gets there because they're rapidly gathering. And he calls it a deaf and mute spirit. He commands it and then throws him into a convulsion that comes out. It's like, actually, the first demon that Jesus cast out in the temple in chapter 1. The very first miracle he performs in Mark's gospel uses similar language. The spirit cried out with a loud voice before it left that person that was possessed. In the same way here, this demon cries out before it leaves. And then, again, verse 27, again, imagery with Mark. One verse, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. It's not like he bent over and just picked him up, right? He just kind of, I think, just grabbed him and he's restored. He's strong. He stands up. It's a great image of Jesus' power. He didn't have to use his, the material world or the physical part. He just, just reached out in a great image of Jesus reaching out and touching the boy. Um, and also it brings in imagery. He's not dead, but it's like he's dead. So it's another image of Jesus' power, really, to raise the dead, even though it doesn't seem like he really was dead. He, uh, wow. Um, we're not even going to get to the main point today, but let me, let me push on. Uh, I don't think you read fast enough when you read the chapter. <laughs> Um, but actually, this will be good because um, I'll give you guys something to prepare for next week. I'm slow of speech. Slow of speech. <laughs> um, 
He came into the house, not sure what house this is, but at this point, there could be a time lapse when they, they make it maybe all the way back to Capernaum where Peter's house was or maybe where Jesus's, you know, his temporary apartment was as he was ministering, ministering these years in Capernaum. Or it could be someone's house nearby where this boy was healed. But either way, they, they get into the house and the idea is there's a privacy here um, with his disciples. And then that's when the disciples begin to question him privately, why could we not drive it out? This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So, um, first of all, this kind implies there are actually different spirits. Some of them are tougher to uh, take care of. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 43, uh, I forget what the verse is, but I have a reference here. Um, Jesus tells us there are different kinds of spirits. Let me just flip there real quick. It's Matthew 12, verse 43. Oh, yeah, right. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. So Jesus, I, I guess the point is, there are different, apparently, spirits and different strength spirits and this was a particularly difficult spirit that required true faith to get rid of it it cannot come out by anything but prayer so what can we learn from that jesus talking to the disciples i guess the nine who were there and couldn't cast out the spirit what can we learn about the disciples just from this statement it's pretty obvious They don't have the power. And why, why don't they have the power? They have weak prayers, apparently. They may not, maybe they didn't pray at all. Certainly, they probably weren't fervent in prayer like Jesus told them to be throughout his ministry and actually his example. I mean, we could go through the New Testament Gospels and probably find 50 descriptions of Jesus going out to be in prayer with the Father. Yeah, well, I think for them at this point, they wouldn't be thinking of praying to Jesus. Maybe they would. I doubt it. They didn't understand it. I mean, but praying to God, praying to their Heavenly Father would have been, I imagine, what they would have been thinking. And, oh, yeah, the old, I mean, Psalms and Proverbs and the Old Testament, I mean, pray, 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 it's, it's everywhere. Um, so the command to pray would have been well known to them. Yes. For this verse? Yeah, for this verse. I haven't come upon that. I don't know. I think... Uh, There's a footnote in the same Like in the manuscripts? I, um... Okay, yeah, I don't... Yeah, I'll, I'll look into it, but probably there was a footnote that says some early manuscripts say fasting and prayer. That'd be my guess. Um, I, the, the key is the fact that in prayer you're asking the Heavenly Father. Yeah. Right? So you can imagine these guys standing there commanding of their own self, yep. you know, as they've been 
sent out as apostles, you know, they didn't cast out demons, so they're down there, you know, trying in their own power right. to cast out this demon instead of asking the Father to do it. Right. Right. And, and then immediately after there's a conversation about who's greatest. Right. That, that's where we're going to go. You will get a sense of where their mind was next week when we get into this, but I want to round this out because cannot come, by, come out by anything but prayer. I want to read Matthew chapter 17, the account, his description of this. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why can we not drive it out? Matthew 17, 20. And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. So here, basically, Jesus is saying, if you put these two together, you're not praying faithfully. You're not fervent, faithfully praying people. And he says, If you were, implies, this demon would have come out. So, Putting the blame really on the disciples. They had, a, they had a small faith and they weren't praying properly. And this is the verse in Matthew 17, 20, where it says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which I guess this guy did. You know, he had faith, help me in my unbelief, right? So he had faith a little bit, but it worked. He had true faith. Um, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. I don't have it in my notes. What is it? What's verse 21? Right. Right. Oh, right. The fasting? Yeah. And I interpret fasting to be a... Um, well, we talk about fasting a lot, but to be a validation of a fervent prayer, right? I mean, fasting would be you're committed, your, your mind is prayerfully committed to the Lord, and that's the kind of prayer that we ought to be engaged in a lot. Persevere in prayer. So I, I've got a, several verses I want to read. I mean, there are thousands in the Bible about prayer, right? Um, Matthew 7, 7, this is to encourage us. Ask, it will be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock, it'll be opened. Luke 18. Well, you can read that whole section, verses 1 through 8, which talks about the uh, fervent prayer of the widow before the judge. She keeps asking and asking and asking. He wasn't going to give her what she wanted. So finally, he said, all right, because of your persistence, I will answer your prayer. So being fervent and pers persistent is what the Lord would call us to do. When you read Paul's letters, a lot of the opening clause, you know, I have not ceased to pray for you. I continue to pray for you night and day. Philippians 1, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And then I've got a few from Psalms. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. Psalm 54, hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. The sacrifice of the wicked, this is Proverbs 15, is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. In Acts chapter 2, remember, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. The effective prayer in James of a righteous man accomplishes much. So we'll end with an application for us. The question is, do we pray enough? And the answer for all of us is... No. 
We don't pray enough. Right. When we do pray, it's it's maybe one of these one of these flippant prayers. Um, there was a quote in here I want to read. Yeah, the same fellow, William Hendrickson, says, um, commenting on the prayer of the apostles, the kind of or the disciples, the prayer they must have had before this demon. He says it was because of their little slapdash prayer. So right, we don't want to have little slapdash prayers. That's probably what they had before this demon. Um, so do we pray enough? No, I do not pray enough. I don't pray enough. Have you ever sat down? I did it this morning because I was going through this, and I, I timed how long. I was going to have a nice, I was going to pray sincerely, and it's like seven minutes, and I think I've been there. And it's like, so it's hard to really commit to prayer for just five minutes. It's not as easy as, I mean, I'm confessing this to you, but I think, I'm sure you're all with me. So uh, if you think about that, how much do you really get alone at your desk, in your room, quietly, and pray to, like, the God of the universe? We have that access. We're Christians. We have the Holy Spirit in us that can communicate with heaven. And do we do it enough? No, we don't. So class, join me. We'll do it. And, and God answers fervent prayers. And if we pray in his will, does he, answer, does he decline to answer it ever, ever, ever? Never. So he always answers every single one of our prayers if it's according to his will. We know his will by being in his word and, I believe, sincerely praying, and he'll steer our hearts and our minds. Okay, so um, for next week, uh, we'll read the rest of chapter 9 and prove that, you know, this is the start of getting some more insight into what the apostles were thinking, disciples were thinking, with this demon and really all along when they're with Jesus. We'll see next week where their hearts really were. This slapdash prayer was part of their hoof of where they were even at this point in their uh, ministry. We'll see that they were continually selfish, continually prideful, not very humble, not very unified, and um, it explains Jesus' comment, oh, how long do I have to be with this generation? So if you can, go ahead and read a couple times this week, the end of chapter 9, and we'll, we'll study that next week. Any questions or comments? And pray a lot this week and all the time. Um, that's in Luke. I don't know the chapter. Anybody know? Um, it's not. Yeah, yeah. And and he and they he keeps beating him up. It's a little comical, actually. Um, I think it's in Luke somewhere. I don't remember toward the middle or last third of the book. But the uh, the demon possession we we studied months back in chapter five of Mark with the demoniac there in the garrisonings, and that was a really dramatic, powerful demon. Um, Anything else? Mm-hmm. 
Thank you. Yeah. And there's, right, there's examples in the Bible of what to pray for, and some of them are things like pray for your leaders. Pray, you know, pray for things that are so remote and so big that you, in some ways you wouldn't even think that your little prayer could affect it, but it can, actually, and the prayers of thousands of people are heard. So, yeah, let's pray more. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? You know, prayer is really a call for yeah. And to recognize who's really in control. So these guys are, you know, arguing about who's greatest or whatever. Well, on the mountaintop was Elijah. Mm-hmm. And when Elijah had his confrontation with the prophets of Baal, you know, yep. he covered the, the sacrifice with water and then got down on his knees and humbly asked God mm-hmm. to answer by fire. And he did, you know, to his glory. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the Lord's Prayer, it's, we can go through that sometime, but our Father in heaven, humble ourselves before Him. Okay, great. Anything else? Thank you. We'll see you next week.